0: How's everybody doing? All right. Well, we're looking forward to going through the scriptures with you tonight, and uh, we have received all kinds of questions. Um, We're not going to get through all of them. I can pretty much, that's the one thing I can say that I know is true, and um, there's no question (laughs) that we're not going to get through them all. So we'll see how it goes. Um, We're open to uh, maybe even extending this out. Um, into next week if we don't get through enough of those questions. So we're just going to see how that goes. But if you're coming on in here, you're tuning in, and you're like, what are are the questions? So on Wednesday nights, we have been looking at um, Luke 21, which is a study of prophecy that Jesus spoke of what would happen at the end of the age. And so um, over the last month or so, we've been collecting questions um, from you all, from those that submitted them, and we compiled them, we tried to bring them into categories, so you may not hear your question, um, maybe answer, or uh, brought forth just the way you sent it in, but we tried to kind of group a bunch of those same similar thoughts together, and that's how we're going to approach this. So, I've got Joel up here, um, he's the millennial, and he's writing a book, Um <laughs> The millennial oh, on
1: the millennium. Yeah, millennial yeah, yeah, on nice. the
0: millennium. I like that. Yeah. So, nice. I'm sure it's sure to fail. So, um, and then we have <laughs> <laughs> we have Jeremy, who's not a millennial, and has no intention of writing a book. So, um, so uh, we've had fun preparing this. Uh, the one thing I will say, we've not gone out of our way. Although we we come from a similar perspective, we have not gone out of our way to script these answers. So. You may even feel a little bit of, you know, uh, different perspective on some particular passages. Um, So, when we come to the study of the last times, eschatology, we have differing views um, within the body of Christ. And so, therefore, we need to make certain that we walk in grace. And so, why don't we pray for that right now? Mm -hmm. Father, we come to you, and as we look at the blessed hope that, Lord, one day we're going to be in your presence Um, I pray that you would just stir our hearts. You would just light afresh that fire that you're coming back for us, that you said that where you are, we would be um, with you and that you have gone to prepare a place for us. And so, Lord, these truths that are found in your scripture spoken from your mouth and inspired through by your Holy Spirit to speak of the coming and to speak of the rapture, to speak of the, the tribulation, to speak of your glory in the kingdom. May you give us uh, eyes and ears to hear and, and a grace, Lord, um, where it may be needed to uh, walk with those that maybe have a different opinion. But Lord, we want to dig into your word and we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us and lead us and guide us. Amen. Amen. All right. So just for starters, so you can know where we're coming from, um, we're coming from the perspective of a pre-trib, pre uh, understanding of end times. So we'll talk about what each of those are in just a moment. But that's our perspective. So you don't have to, we're not trying to be tricky or fancy here. You, you can calibrate us. We're dispensationalists. I'm not really going to get off into that whole definition, but a pre-trib, pre mill person is a dispensationalist. A little more to it than that, but, but that's, they certainly touch. Um, so that's where we're coming from. That's how we're going to answer it. And we are not ashamed of our position at all. Um, we don't, um, um, but in, in answering emphatically, don't misunderstand that as being aggressive. But we are going to answer emphatically where we, um, we feel like we can. And there's some places where we may um, come down soft on the issue. It's like, well, you know, I mean, it could be this or it could be that. And um, so you, you'll hear that as we, we go through things. So here's something I want to say. As those who hold to a pre-trib, pre-mill view, um, I think it's important that we don't look at the world around us and come to the conclusion that every single thing happens is a sign of the rapture of the church. And I think this is a place where um, that dispensational, pre-trib, pre-millennial view has maybe walked into some error in the past. We'll talk about that. So not everything is going to be a sign. Um, I mean, Jesus even said in Luke 21, hey, a lot of things are going to go on, but this is not the end. So straight from the mouth of Jesus, he told us things would happen, and they're not necessarily an indication that it is the end. But let me start here with this first major point, and I want to make this point, and then we'll get into the questions, because it is the underpinning of all of our answers. So um, one of the questions is like, this is such a huge subject, how do we even begin to wrap my mind around it? And um, so let me start with this. It it comes down to how you handle and interpret Scripture. And there, um, you you know, before you start racing off into this direction on that passage or this, you know, uh, theological issue or that theological issue or this difficult passage in Scripture, what you need to understand is how are you going to approach Scripture? You need to have a high view. Of course, I know that. I'm just saying, you all do. Whether you don't, you do now. You have a high view of Scripture. You believe that it is the inspired and errant Word of God. So we come to it like that. But we also believe, and here's the point, that Scripture was written to be understood and that it was written in a way that um, God was communicating real truths about real events. And so we believe that. Scripture should be interpreted literally, accommodating similes, metaphors, hyperbole, um, all kinds of images, all kinds of uh, uh, figures of speech. So when we say literal, um, we understand that writers of Scripture use, you know, literary devices to communicate a, liter- a literal truth. Jesus said, "If your right eye offends you, pluck it out and throw it from you." We believe that. There's a literal truth there, and that is do whatever you have to do to be radical with sin. But I don't think we need to start throwing eyeballs all over the place, okay? so, so But it was a hyperbole, right? He was, it, And the hyperbole was there to drive the point home of a literal truth that you got to get crazy with sin. You can't just be soft with it. So we, be, we believe in a literal approach to studying the Scriptures. And because of that, not just... New Testament passages, but Old Testament passages, and all prophetic passages. And that is not the way everybody approaches studying scripture, especially on our topic of prophecy. Many, I'll even say maybe most historically, have chosen to uh, interpret uh, prophetic passages and they spiritualize it or they allegorize it and they don't look for a literal meaning. And this is why you have such a disparity of belief in the church, because you have others like ourselves who will hold to a literal interpretation of Scripture. Okay, so before you start diving into Daniel, it's like, how are you going to understand this? Are you going to understand Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation or uh, Matthew or Thessalonians, uh, many other passages, Jeremiah? Are you going to understand them to be communicating a literal truth? Well, if so, I believe without a doubt you're going to come to two conclusions right off the top. And here, some big, big steps. Number one, we believe in a literal approach to Scripture. Number two, when you do that, you're going to come to this realization: God is not done with Israel. That it, you, and, and I'll, I'll even the opponents of what I'm saying acknowledge this. If you approach the study of the Word of God in a literal way, that it, prophetic passages, passages about the kingdom, passages about the tribulation, that they are literal. Yes, there's all kinds of literary devices used to communicate the literal truth. If you do that, you will come to the conclusion that God is not finished with the nation of Israel and the many promises in the Old Testament and New Testament are still that are unfulfilled will be fulfilled. Okay, so that is a direct conclusion that comes out of believing in a, a, that approach to Scripture. The second thing that you're going to come to the conclusion on using that approach, especially as it relates to prophetic passages, is that the church and Israel are distinct. Are, do Jews belong to the church? Uh, believing Jews, of course, as do believing Gentiles. Two men made into one the body of Christ. That's the truth. But it is also the truth that there is still an ethnic group of people who have descended from Father Abraham. We know this because he had what? Many sons. Many sons. Many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. So, so anyways, he has a, a, a group of people that have descended physically from him. It's a nation of Israel. And so, they have promises that are not related to the church of Jesus Christ. And we'll get into some of this. So you have... These three big pillars, and really one big pillar, I'm going to approach all Scripture. I'm going to interpret it literally. And when I do that, I'm going to come to these two conclusions prophetically. God is not finished with Israel, and the Israel and the church are distinct. When you have those in place, um, it really does become a whole lot easier to study and interpret Scripture. But if you want to go in with kind of a foot in both camp, I promise you, you will pull your hair out and you will be confused. It's just because you can't, you can't walk in both camps. So let me read to you a quote, and this comes from Charles Ryrie, and he talks about this idea of approaching Scripture in a literal, in a literal way, and he quotes from somebody who's on the other side. His name is Floyd Hamilton, and he does not believe that you should interpret prophecy um, in the Old Testament especially, or as it relates to Israel, in a literal sense. Now, he, may, he, he would say that about the resurrection. He would say that about the epistles and everything else, uh, how to live your life morally. Um, they'll take that literal approach to it. But when it comes to prophetic issues, they change their method of interpretation. They have two ways in which they understand and interpret Scripture. Whereas we would say, we've got one. And that is, we're going to take it, and we're going to seek to find the literal meaning in every single passage of Scripture. Whereas they would say, no, there's two. And so let me read to you this quote. And it begins with, um, I'm reading from Charles Ryrie, and then he ends up quoting from Floyd Hamilton. So just so you can see that the point that I made is that if you take this approach, it's even agreed upon by the opponents of this view. All conservatives... Whatever their eschatological persuasions, use literal or normal interpretation everywhere except eschatology. That's what conservative Christians do. Floyd Hamilton and all millennialists acknowledges, quote, a literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies gives us just such a picture of an earthly reign of the Messiah as the premillennialist pictures. The amillennialist, end quote, of course, do not accept that picture of the future because he employs a different hermeneutic in the area of prophecy. Spiritualize it, allegorize it. So if you approach, that's why I can say so confidently, if you come at Scripture and you take it literally, you're going to come away with this, this view, God's not done with Israel, and Israel and the church are two distinct groups of people. And uh, God is working with the church. God is going to bring all of Israel one day, Um, to faith in Jesus. So that's kind of, that is where we are. We want to take a consistent approach. That is such a foundational piece to biblical prophecy. And that might, to some of you that might say, man, this is not answering my question. I promise you I am. I am answering your question in the biggest way. If that's all you got out of tonight, you can go and study it all on your own. You just got to answer the question. Do I believe I'm to take Scripture literally or not? That, that's, that's really what it comes down to. So we talked about um, how um, there's, th- those that are all millennialists, or they're a different point of view. They don't believe in the literal tribulation. They don't believe in a literal reign of Christ upon the earth that you know, Jesus is not going to sit upon the throne of David physically. Um, it's not to say that they interpret all prophecy that way because they will jump up and down, sing a hallelujah and, and, and go to passages of Christ's first coming and they will take it literally. So for example, they will acknowledge that Jesus um, is the Messiah born of a virgin. They're not going to doubt that. They will believe that he was pierced. They're going to believe that he died on the cross right, and was pierced. They're going to say that they cast lots for his clothes. All these are Old Testament prophecies, right? They're going to say that he was betrayed by a friend. They're going to say that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Fulfillment of Scripture. What God says comes to pass. These are the ways that they would teach it, just like we do here. Um, That Jesus was born in Bethlehem, without question. And so they will talk about the first coming prophecies of Jesus, literally. Second coming prophecies are almost, I don't want to say all, but I'll say it taken to be um, allegorical, or they will spiritualize it. So let me me give you an example of what I'm talking about and how this inconsistency um, of taking two methods. Sometimes I take it literally, but other times I don't take it literally. What do you do if it's in the same verse? So I got two verses for you. You know them very, very well. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. It's talking about the triumphal entry. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fall of a donkey. Literal? Yeah. Nobody denies that. Unless you just don't believe in the Bible. But yeah, that is definitely literal. What does the next verse say? It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, And the horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off. Implements of war, right? He shall speak peace to the nations. Who's he? The one coming on the donkey. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So verse 9 I take literally, but verse 10 I spiritualize. On what basis do you do that? What in the text said, change the way you interpret this now? There's nothing. There's zero. There's zip. There's nada. What drives it is a theological system of interpreting Scripture that says Old Testament prophecies that have not been fulfilled in the first coming are going to be allegorized or spiritualized. First coming will be literal. And so that drives them. And they come to this, and rather than saying, well, the one who rode on the donkey is going to reign from sea to sea. And he's going to destroy. Do you see why the disciples and everybody else said, are you going to set up your kingdom at this time? Because when he rides in on the donkey, the very next verse says he's going to set up his kingdom. They weren't out of their minds when they said, are you going to do this? I mean, this is what the prophets were saying. But what we now know is between verses 9 and 10 is the church age. And there will be a second coming. So hopefully that's one example. We could go through many, many more. So we're going to begin to answer some of your questions, but this is just such a huge piece. But I'll, I'll allow um, either one of you guys, if you want to just jump in and, and add another thought or reiterate something on this this
2: approach. Well, I just, <clears throat> it's a great start, Troy. I so much appreciate that, you know, the. Uh, what I've loved is not having to know all the systems and pick one before I could understand the Scripture without knowing that all those you know, different methods of approach were out there simply sitting under the consistent teaching of the Word and following through it. I came to believe exactly what Pastor Troy just shared, that the Lord is continuing His work in and through the nation of Israel while He's completed uh, among us all the promises from the beginning to israel that they would be the source of his salvation to all mankind and and so that it's just so powerful and and as you unpack the prophecies you recognize that there was no other way for that to have happened but for israel to reject they'll still be held accountable and responsible for that rejection as the lord works in and through them but uh, that rejection opens salvation to the world and so i didn't have to understand which would be the best system to get to that answer? When you read the scripture, study the scripture, and just ask the questions: Has this already happened? Is yeah. this still it's going good. to happen? Um, when, and there's real answers to that. If you if you wonder about a prophecy that you're looking at and whether that's been filled or fulfilled, I mean, you'll find that that prophecy unfolds in you know um, it's been described as you know continuing peaks. There are many things that the Lord speaks that are true. They're true for the prophet and his audience immediately but they become truer over time or they may have a greater fulfillment and so um, we can we can wade into a prophecy prayerfully read through it determine what's been what has happened what's been fulfilled and what may yet be ahead without having to invent a new meaning for it that will you know suit a system so Mm -hmm. you don't have to be uh, you know a, a college educated anyone you can just read this the people that it was proclaimed to were Typically, simple people, farmers. So yeah. that uh, I love being included in that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and if interpretive principles are constructs of man, um, then there really is license to interpret whatever uh, passage—not n- even just scripture, but conversation, um, any written form of language. There's really license for the one who's interpreting to uh, adopt uh, an idea or an understanding to fit fit your own your own liking. So, for instance, those, those passages that you mentioned. But really it's clear that, that the rules of interpretation, um, they, they're inherent within man. They're not constructs that we have developed. Now, um, there's this, the, the idea that we can develop these skills. We can develop um, and, and refine our, our skills in interpreting things like Scripture. Um, but since we've been created with the ability to interpret. I think we should employ these elements of of understanding what the author has meant, not what we think or we bring to the text. Because if that's the case, we can make anything say what we want. Words have meaning. Words um, convey particular ideas. And in certain contexts, they communicate certain truths and certain perspectives. So if we come to to certain passages with a, a spiritualizing Idea, or we come and we employ um, allegory as an interpretive method. When it's not meant to be allegorized, then we're, we're we're reading into that meaning that wasn't there or intended by the author. So I think it's just important. And as Troy mentioned, um, people will will point at this system of interpretation and say, "You're so rigid. You don't you don't account for allegory. You don't account for literary devices." But That's just simply not the case. I mean, he gave a couple of examples there. So um, it's important how we approach the scriptures.
0: So that's big building block number one. And from there you can go. But, you know, I think the idea that has this been fulfilled? No. Then we look forward to it being fulfilled at a later time. Why? Because God is a true prophet. And whatever he says is going to come to pass. So let's move on here. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the millennium. What, what do we refer to, since you're writing a book, Joel, um, about the millennium? What,
1: what is the millennium? Uh, the millennium is uh, a thousand-year period, and, and we get this idea from um, Revelation chapter 20. So it's, it's in reference to something that is yet future. Um, and, you know, when we hear things like post-millennium, uh, post-millennialism, amillennialism, pre-millennialism, those prefixes are with reference to the second advent of Christ and where that's going to happen with respect to the millennium or that thousand year. And again, as we mentioned, some some people don't take that as a literal thousand years, but Revelation chapter 20 is where we get, um, among other passages, this idea of the
0: millennium. Yeah, let me read that. Revelation 20 verses 5 through 8, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle whose numbers are the sand of the sea. So this passage talks about, and you could even go into the verses 1 through 4 too actually. this passage talks about a thousand year literal reign of Christ or a reign of Christ upon the earth, so the premillennial view is what Joel just shared. Is we we believe that's going to be that's literally going to happen upon this earth, and that Jesus will sit upon the throne of David and rule and reign. But the other view uh, two other views, amillennialism, uh, doesn't believe in a literal reign of Christ. Um, they would say that. The, uh, it's a spiritual affair that the church has replaced Israel. And so we are living in a spiritual reign of Christ now. He rules and reigns in your heart, doesn't he? Would be kind of their thought. The other view um, is post-millennialism. And it sees the reign of uh, this physical reign happening now through the church. And they also believe that things are going to get better and better until we finally usher in the second coming of Christ because things have gotten so much better. Okay? So, these are very different views. Only one view takes a literal approach to it, and in that reign of a thousand years, all those unfulfilled, I say all, but vast majority of the unfulfilled prophecies regarding Israel will be fulfilled in that thousand years. And so... The Lord will be a true prophet. And what he said was going to happen is going to happen. Um, so, like with the post millennial view, quite, you know, very, very common, very popular, as is all millennial view, but they would actually see that, that Satan is bound right now. Right now, he's bound. It's a little disappointing. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's. Um... <clears throat> You know he's bound with a great chain. We read, and he is thrown into you know uh, uh, the abyss, and he's being held there. And 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 they would say, no, what's happening right now is, hey, look at this, and it is disappointing. If Satan is bound right now, um, I'm, when I when I read of him being bound, I'm thinking righteousness and um, and 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 faith and spirituality just flourishing.
2: So that's those are the views, um, Jeremy. Well, can, I, can I just add yeah. real quick just before we make this um, transition, Troy? You said that these, you know, different views of the return, different systems of thought. You know, the the real a real issue is <clears throat> what's connected to those is how you react and what your response is. And so that post millennial view, it may, you may have heard it referred to as maybe dominion theology or kingdom now theology. Um, has a very interesting effect because if if it's true if the return of Jesus is predicated on or dependent on our perfecting and preparing something to a degree um, that that he's able to return or willing to return or we've accomplished what is needed for that uh, that puts a a very different focus on the activity and the, um, the passion of the believers of Jesus, right? What will we be about if we think that we need to reform institutions and establish righteousness on our own such that he can come? Do um, you see how that difference in timing can completely alter what it is that captivates your focus and, and what you pour your life into? So I just think it's yeah. not just pick a system. Uh, they have very different outworkings. Yeah, they, they're I think.
0: definitely going to impact the way you... You live out your, yeah. your faith. Um, so let's talk about this, Jeremy. Will Israel take part, or is God finished working with her and exclusively working with the church?
2: Yeah, so uh, great question. We could I think we could take a very long time on this. I mean, just the immediate question of will Israel take part in the millennium, since everything that we know about the millennium has um, some geographic uh, Significance—it's spoken of being uh, taking place from Israel. You know, if if you were to read those scriptures literally, since we concur that there is an actual millennium, that's got to be taking place in the land of Israel. And so, it would be extremely odd to have a millennium that's being ruled and reigned on the whole earth from Israel and not have there be in an Israel. Um, and and so. So yes, to Israel being a part of the millennium, um, Jesus speaks to uh, his disciples and says, "You know, those of you who are my followers, uh, in in that day, in the day uh, of the messianic kingdom, his messianic reign, you will sit on thrones with me and you will judge the twelve tribes of Israel." Again, since we know it's literal, we understand that to be a literal judging of literal tribes of Israel. If you spiritualize that, then Who's judging what and where are they? So so it's it's the geographic and the Israel specific terminology really does drive you to a, a yes. Um, the, the almost the bigger question is the you know the replacement theology question um, right. even, even that term itself can be um, a little bit antagonistic. it's not meant to be, but replacement theo- uh, theology or supersessionism, some would call it fulfillment theology is that idea that um, a, a Walter Kaiser you know, Categorizes it. He's not a proponent, but he says uh, it's the theology that declares that the church, Abraham's spiritual seed, has replaced national Israel in that it had transcended and fulfilled the terms of the covenant given to Israel, which covenant Israel had lost because of disobedience. So this is the, you know, the key view is that, well, the Lord is done with Israel because they had failed to obey.
0: Now, the, the I mean, it, that should make all of us feel a little nervous.
2: <laughs> well, it does. First of all, if your if you're, if your ascendancy to the throne of inheriting all the promises that were given to Israel is performance based, um, you can answer personally. How are you doing? Is is your righteousness you know in in the full light of the Lord and in you know under the blood of the Lamb? Is your righteousness enough that you can say, Oh well, I'm doing much better than Israel. I, I never. I'm never tempted to idolatry. I never profane, you know, the name of the Lord by not living as I ought to. You know, it's a it's a very tenuous place from which to say I think that these are all ours now because we're doing better. And if you read any church history, you know, that doesn't really add mm-hmm. to the, uh, to the argument. Mm-hmm. But but what I think we need to look at is, and this is in fairness, I think we have to look at um, what has happened. You know, this this line of thinking, the way of. Coming to the scriptures, we have to recognize developed during, you know, a period, 1900 plus years, where what was missing from the planet, right? We had no visible nation of Israel. We had, after 70 AD, we had Jewish men and women in the diaspora scattered throughout the globe, as prophetic scriptures have always declared, very literally, that was fulfilled. Um, And... uh, And so for 1,900 years, to read the scripture and have the faith to believe that there would still be a a resurrection of that nation, um, not just salvation for Jewish people being possible, because many replacement theologians will accede that, they'll give you that, they'll say, well, yes, of course, Jewish people can come to salvation, but no supersessionist will really uh, contend that... There will be a future national Israel. So for 1900 years, that was a very understandable way for people to wrestle, I mean, to, to struggle with this issue. However, since May of 1948, not by the work of the church, not by the necessarily, you know, uh, any plan of man, but the United Nations of, you know, of all institutions agreed together to allow the nation to reform. And and it's been said by some, it's it's an agreement, the resolution in May of 48, it's an agreement that six months prior was literally impossible, and six months later was literally impossible to be forged. But the Lord made a way that there is now a nation. We could talk at great length about how you feel about the nation, or what we see when we look at, you know, the behavior of Jewish people in that nation, but in our time, I think it's fair to begin to ask people, if you don't hold to a literal interpretation of the Scriptures, how do you explain the existence of almost 10 million Jewish people living in the geographical territory that's always been attributed to being Israel? It's a, I think that's a, a question that they really need to contend with.
0: And I think they just, the way you do it is you dismiss it. You say, well, it's insignificant because... The church has replaced Israel, so whatever happens with them does not matter. But there are some specific verses that that we can look at that tell us that God will never be done with Israel, isn't there? Can you share a few of Uh, those?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Let me, uh, Ezekiel 36, uh, I'll read from 22 through 30. And it's again, it's a description of the Lord's life-giving work to these people. Again, the prophet Ezekiel speaking into Israel's disobedience in the moment. So while it would have been an opportune moment for the Lord to declare, therefore, You know, I'm moving on from Israel. It's not what he says at all. Uh, Ezekiel 36 says, uh, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this, this coming restoration, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I'll sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. And and you can pause and ask there, has that happened yet? There was a destruction of the temple and a diaspora in 70 AD that came after this promise. I would contend that this has not completely happened yet at all. So I think it's speaking to, it's pouring forth a promise of an even future restoration for i will in verse 24 he continues for i will take you from among the nations gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land then i'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean i will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols i will give you a new heart put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will call for the grain and multiply it. So it's not even just a return to the land. It's a rebirth and a, and a promise of prosperity that you know, has eluded them for millennia. Um, I'll call for the grain, multiply it, and bring no fam- famine on you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Jeremiah 31. I mean, we can, we can go for quite a while. Jeremiah 31, which we're all familiar with because we sit under this covenant as given to the, to the Jewish people initially. Beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So... I, We could ask, this is a promise of a covenant that we would say, except for individual instances, myself, Jewish people who know Jesus as Messiah, this has not been fulfilled. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke... Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Not just a people scattered across the planet who I'm still willing to save, but a nation. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Um, and it goes on, the rest of the passage even talks about a very physical rebuilding that the Lord ends the chapter with saying, it shall not be plucked up or thrown down anymore forever. Mm. I would propose that we are not. Yeah. <laughs> right,
0: we're not there. And so, I mean, to me, these passages, if you mm-hmm. take them literally, you cannot say that God is done with Israel. The only way you can say that God is done with Israel is to say, that doesn't mean that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's not, this is not, you know, a passage, passages that are full of all kinds of imagery and signs and hyperbole and metaphor. It's just the Lord is just speaking. I'm not done with you. I will never be done with you because of my namesake. So I think you know, this is a great example of if, you, if you're going to come to the place where you say God has done with Israel, then you've got to look at those passages you have to say they don't mean yeah. what they read. Because anybody who would read those verses would come to the conclusion without a theological system driving them that God's not done with Israel. Yeah. It's the only literal conclusion you can come to.
1: Amen. Well, and I would say furthermore, a, a, alongside those specific Old Testament prophecies that you have to contend with, Romans chapter 11 is very clear, Paul makes it very clear that yes, for a time, Israel has in a sense been set aside, they've been hardened. Mm-hmm. Um, it, this new work of the church is is that, that primary work, yes, that the Lord is working through the earth um, at this time, but again, it doesn't mean that that the Lord is done with Israel, and even further than that in the argument that Paul makes, our hope as Gentiles is in the root of Israel and in, in the God of Israel. And I think the real spectacle for us, you know, is that, that, that Gentiles are coming to faith in the salvation through the Messiah of Israel. And, and, and not the other way around. We have been grafted into Israel as that wild olive shoot. And um, Paul guards against that, that thought of arrogance of, of um, we're it, and he said, "Well, be careful because you've been grafted into to the tree, yeah. which is Israel." And I, right. I think that's. And that's he talks an about he goes
0: about how that blindness that's happened in Israel is in part, and will will only be there until the fullness of the Gentiles have come, and then all Israel is going to believe. Mm-hmm. So it, the, the bible's very, very clear about this: is that um, if you take a literal approach, the Lord is not done, even at the announcement to Joseph about. The child Mary was carrying is that he's going to rule over his people Israel. They rejected that rulership. So when is he going to do it? Right. So I mean, you can. I mean, there are there are yeah. so many passages, but we're going to go ahead and, and move on. But one of the major objections that people will make to this millennial kingdom and Israel is is that well, if you take it literally, we read in Ezekiel that a temple is going to be built, and in this temple, their sacrifices that are going to be happening. And so the question is this, um, if there's going to be literal sacrifices in the future, in the, in the millennial kingdom, then what are we supposed to do with the fact that Jesus was the last sacrifice once and for all? So in a short, short answer, Jeremy, how do you, how do you respond to that? Yeah.
2: Well, uh, let me first uh, give you Ezekiel forty-five, seventeen, where it speaks specifically to this. It says, Then it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and at all the appointed seasons of the house of Israel. He shall prepare the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings to make atonement for the house of Israel. So, a couple of things. One, we're talking about um, you know, millennial sacrifice in a temple that will yet be built, my question would be if, if, there, if the temple and these sacrifices are only symbolic, why do we have, you know, you know, Ezekiel goes into amazingly painful detail about that temple itself. Why if it's not going to be actually built? But given that it is, it, crea- it does create a tension for New Testament believers, but we have, to, we have to do a few things. We have to cling to what we know, and we have to admit what we may not know. And what we may I would say what we may not even be able to know. So what we're doing in this moment is we're clinging to the reality that uh, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So that work of reconciliation between fallen man and the Father has been accomplished by his sacrifice and nothing else. So we belong to the Father. However... Uh, in within this nation of Israel, look, there is clearly, and other prophets speak, you know, at great length about sacrifice that will take place. Um, this is this is going to happen for real. We're we're a little bit uncomfortable with sacrifice taking place again. So we have to realize it's not salvific; it's not for salvation, but it may be. Um, some will attribute it to well, it's symbolic. It's mere. It, it does take place, but it's merely a um, a remembrance, a commemoration of um, sacrifice past or of the Lord's sacrifice Himself. Um, that's possible. Um, I, I tend to think that the difficulty is is a little more than that. I think that as we look at it, we're we're looking at, we're looking into a different dispensation. We're looking into. Uh, a moment in time that we've not stepped into yet where the Lord himself is here ruling and reigning, and yet sacrifice is called for under that rule and reign. And I, I suspect we can't fully understand it. Um, that...
0: Yeah, and I think just to be completely candid, this is, this is a difficult point with a, a view of a literal thousand-year reign upon Christ, of Christ upon the earth is that there would be these sacrifices. And so, so this is a challenge. But it's also a challenge to say that chapter... How many chapters does he talk about the temple and the rain?
2: Probably like four. Four maybe chapters. It's, it's also
0: a, a challenge to say that for four chapters, it means absolutely nothing. I mean, we all have a problem here. There's a temple, four chapters about it, and the sacrifices that are being made. You say it is, and it is clearly future... It's prophecy that's, that's never been fulfilled. There's so many details. These things have never happened. So you have to do something with four chapters of, of prophecy. And if you, you know, you can retreat by asking the question, saying, well, what about these sacrifices? And I'll say, you know, what? I don't fully understand and I don't fully know. I know they do, they're not for, um, they're, you know, Jesus's, Jesus Christ's sacrifice was once for all. I got that. Whatever happens there is not going to supersede the work of Jesus. So we're going to have to wait and find out. There's information we don't have about a period of time that we don't know about. I think you kind of brought this up in our discussion earlier. Is that Could you imagine if you were to go to um, a, a Jew living, you know, a thousand years before Christ and said, when the Messiah comes and all the sacrifices are no longer needed because he is that one last sacrifice, what are we going to do? They would have pulled their hair out trying to right. conceptualize That other dispensation. What what do you mean? I mean, they did not foresee the ending of sacrifices when the Messiah came. But we know that when he came, these things did come to an end. So, just as the person before the coming of Christ would have a hard time looking forward and understanding that because of the lack of information in Scripture, I raise my hand and say, I feel the same way. There's things that are going to happen in the future in the millennial kingdom, we don't have enough information. To know exactly what it means and it, and it doesn't mean. We know it's not that Jesus' work is insufficient. That's not it. Yeah. So it's a problem, but it's a problem for everybody who wants to read those passages. Right. You've got to deal with it in some way. It, so so I, just, f- I find it easier just to look and say, w- more information to come, and we know what it doesn't mean.
2: Right, and I was just going to add, it's, it's even more complicated in that not... It's not merely Jewish sacrifice, but Zechariah and other prophets indicate that Zechariah and Isaiah both indicate that there will also be Gentile nations that are bringing sacrifice in humility. Those specifically who opposed Israel in the last days will be will be facing you know life-altering drought as nations unless they come up to Israel annually, make sacrifice uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles. So so you either have to also explain that away as you know, mythical or, or not, you know, literal, and it just becomes very difficult when there's a consistent um, line of thinking and a consistent declaration from the Lord through multiple authors of Israel's future and the millennial future.
0: So let's move on. Another question. Um, Joel, is the world getting better or worse? Um, some have, you know, uh, w- articles have been cited. We didn't go to verify them, but, you know, that right. there are more people getting saved every day than we're getting saved on the day of Pentecost. More believers coming in. Um, so it's hard to speak to the accuracy of those articles. Right. But in general, from a, you know, is the world getting better or worse? And why is that question even, re- where's that question aiming at? What's it? Looking to address?
1: Sure. Um, I think obviously, as we look at the world, we, we know and understand that uh, the way people are living doesn't look more Christ like than, than it has a few years ago, many, many years ago, thousands of years ago. Uh, we live in a sinful world, and um, people are living how they want. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely don't think the world is getting better. Um, is it in a nosedive? I mean, from some perspectives, you would think, yeah. I mean, from some some things that we see going on in the world, it definitely seems like it's getting worse. You know, this idea of of the world getting better or worse, and um, you know, the article that that Troy mentioned of this many people getting saved each hour of over this period of time in these days, um, the idea is that eventually all of the world will become saved, will become Christianized, and And eventually it will just all get better and Jesus will come back. So this really comes from um, a post-millennial view that says that we as Christians, we will evangelize the world and eventually over time, um, the world will get better and better and better. And so if you hold to this view and you don't see the world getting better, some questions start turning. Uh, What else do we need to do is, you know, so... Um, it comes from, from that hope. And the hope is that this, this will usher back the, the return of Christ. Right. So. And we rejoice if, if at yeah. yeah. uh, anyone that's getting
0: saved, right? I mean, that's what we yeah. want to do. We want to be out there evangelizing, so we rejoice in that. But here's the thing that, that I think is so important for us. We do not develop our doctrine or interpret Scripture based upon what's happening in our world today. Because our world changes. It's different today than it was 500 years ago and then 500 years earlier. I mean, things change. And so a lot of these views of, as, of, of prophecy change, and they're born out of what's happening in the current hour. That's not a good way to develop your theology, is it? You, your theology comes from the Word of God. So here are a couple of verses that I, I believe address this. 2 Timothy 3.13, we studied it not so long ago. It says, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So very clear indication that we can expect things to get worse. Matthew 24, 12, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Luke 18, 8, "Um, I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? I mean, the idea is like the, is things are not going to be good. He's going to return, and there's going to be so little faith that it's going to be hard for him to even find it. Or 2 Thessalonians 2.8, And when the lawless one, Satan, uh, the Antichrist, is revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So it's going to be lawless days ruled by a lawless one. So while we may see pe- more people getting saved, if it's true then, you, you know, every day than the day of Pentecost, well, that's something for us to thank the Lord for and rejoice in. Um, and yet, the testimony of Scripture is things are going to get worse, not better. And so does that then mean that we should just kind of like, oh, well, or get, you know, if the ship is sinking anyway. Let's just go down with it. No, because we want as many people as possible to come to faith in Jesus Christ and to escape the coming wrath Upon this earth, So that was a good question that came in. Um, related to this is, does the gospel have to be preached to the whole world before the rapture? I kind of modified that question a little bit, but I think that's the way the question is most oftenly put forth. Is, uh, does the gospel have to be preached to the whole world before the rapture? And the passage that's used to talk about this um, is Matthew 24, verses 13 through 14. It says, he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So that's Matthew 24, verses 13 through 14. So the idea is the rapture cannot happen before the second coming of Christ, before the end, because it will take all the way to the end for all the nations to hear the gospel. So, therefore, a pre trib rapture is not possible. It has to be a, a, a rapture that's synonymous with the second coming when the end happens. Because we'll need those last seven years to preach the gospel to the whole world. So, I don't know. I mean, I know this is kind of my question to answer, but do you guys want to chime in um, on this at all? Or?
2: I mean, I love that it reflects the Lord's heart. First of all, that you know what He's proclaimed, what He sent the the disciples out to do in the power of the Spirit, what He's commissioned us to do is you know captivating to the end that the, that the good news goes forth. I wouldn't see that as um, limiting or even really determining the timing of His return. The the Matthew twenty four passage is a is a an apocalyptic. Um, second coming. Tribulation. Yeah, it's a second coming tribulation type passage. It's spoken to Jewish people who will be receiving it, you know, in in the most difficult of times. He's describing Israel, you know, in the tribulation. Um, so, so right. I, I would see I would see the church proper having already been removed, um,
1: and the gospel continuing to go so forward. So the
0: question then is, Joel. Well, if who's preaching the gospel if
1: the church is gone? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we see that that there's going to be. Um, a remnant of, of Israel that's saved They're in the 144,000. They're going to go out and evangelize the world at that time. Revelation I, 14. I, yeah, Revelation 14. Um, and I think another important thing is when we're talking about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, is that with reference to the church, the fullness of the Gentiles coming into the church or coming into salvation? Because we do see Gentiles being saved sure. throughout the tribulation. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's something to consider as well. Um, you know, the, the idea of, of the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. I think the, the general idea when that question is asked is the fullness of the Gentiles needs to come into the church. But we also see that there's going to be a work of salvation in the tribulation right. that involves Jews and Gentiles as well, but will be distinct from the church. And when you read through Revelation,
0: you get, I mean, it's like there's not, it's not a trickle of salvation. There is many people getting saved. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned the 144,000 that will be sealed. No harm can come to them. They will be preaching. But we also find in Revelation 11, the two witnesses, they're going to be giving forth testimony and prophesying. Uh-oh. And there's all also those,
2: one other group. All those guys, Jewish and in Israel, when this is happening. Yeah, so.
0: that's right. 12, Twelve tribes in Israel, so Jerusalem. If there's, if there's no Israel, the that, that's really awkward. Yeah. <laughs> and then one fun verse is Revelation 14 6. And this is answering the question, well, who's preaching the gospel in, in uh, in the tribulation and if the church is gone? Revelation 14, 6 states, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. The two witnesses, the 144,000, an angel of the Lord, those that are just getting saved and repeating the message, there is going to be many people that are speaking. And so it's in this time. And so um, I've gone to Nepal many, many times. And whenever I'm flying on these little planes or even coming into Kathmandu, you see all of these mountains and you see all of these little pin dots of villages that look impossible to get to. And so in my mind, whenever I read Revelation 14.6, I'm just thinking that angel is just going to start cruising through those mountain villages of Nepal and other places where the gospel is not gone. And he's going to be proclaiming the everlasting gospel. So there is going to be no shortage of that message being preached. And so everyone is going to hear this message before the Lord returns. But it's not all going to happen through the preaching of the church. Um. Boy, as we get into this next section, and we're going to have to go over just a little bit, but we'll maybe pick up part of this. Um, let's talk about the rapture. We've mentioned the rapture a lot. What is the rapture, and what are the different views? And Joel, you were kind of
1: driving a lot of this, yeah. but go ahead and... and... Yeah, so, so the, we get the idea of, of the rapture from a few key passages, Um, And and I'll just, uh, I'm not going to read those passages, but I'll give you some of the references there. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 57. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 to 17. And then it's also kind of mentioned in John 14, verses 1 through 3. But the idea of the rapture is, is taught by, specifically the passage that comes to mind is that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where uh, Paul mentioned there, there's going to be a, a catching up uh, of the believers to meet the Lord in the air. I will read that, that passage just briefly. It says, starting verse 15, For this we say to you by the, the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So, so here we have the, the resurrection of those who are asleep in Christ or who have passed on. Um, and right along with that, um, the, the rapture. So uh, the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So that's where we get the idea of But you didn't read the, rapture. the word rapture. In- yes. No, I didn't. <laughs> well, why not? So uh, it's because it is not. It's not in the original Greek. It's actually a transliteration from Latin, um, and so um, it's rapturo, and so that just transliterates into the English rapture. And
0: so caught up is what we have in most versions. And the Greek word is harpazo. Yep. So when somebody says to you, "Well, the wor- you know rapture is not even in the Bible," your qu- your response is, "What Bible?" I mean, okay, it's not in your English Bible, but there is a newsflash. There are other Bibles out there that are not in English. And the right. Latin, which was a prominent um, and dominant you know, translation for years, has it. So th- this is just kind of a crazy little argument that people mm-hmm. say. Because the word Trinity is not in your Bible either. Well, I mean, But this is a doctrine we believe. So, yeah. so the idea is then that we're going to be, the Lord's going to come and he's going to snatch yeah. people up.
1: Yeah, it's going to snatch us up into the air. We'll, we'll be there. Um, and, and after that point, what remains on the earth, we'll discuss later, but the, the tribulation will ensue there. Um, we will be changed. Paul talks a lot about this in the 1 Corinthians 15 passage, where there's going to be a translation is like the actual um, idea that we get from, from the Greek language. There's going to be a changing that takes place. With our our natures, our physical bodies. So we who are alive, I'm praying for the rapture. I'm praying to be caught up, snatched up, and be translated or changed in the moment. And there's going to be that physical resurrection of the bodies of believers who have died before um, that that moment. So that's what the the rapture is um, in in general. And um, there's a several main views of, of when this is going to take place. Right. So there's there's not much of a question of how it's going to take place or what the actual snatching up or catching up of, of believers will be. Um, most of the question comes, when is this going to happen? And there are three primary views. There are subsets of these, but um, I'm not going to go into that. The first is the post-trib rapture. Again, um, post-tribulation meaning... This rapture will take place at the end of the tribulation, just before the second coming of Christ. Um, Some believe it's it's almost a simultaneous event just before or as he's descending, like we read about there in 1 Thessalonians 4. They'll take that to mean that's the second advent of Christ. So that that will take place. Then they believe the church will then endure the tribulation. This is, you can't escape this when you think of post-tribulation rapture, that if this is the case... The church is what is going to be raptured. Um, and if it's going to happen at the end of the tribulation... Then we, see, we meet Mr. Antichrist. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and so it's going to happen just prior to the second coming. And, and um, there's also a lack of distinguishing between the church and Israel through the tribulation, if you take this idea as well. Um, and, and I think one of the key, verse, the, the key points of this is if you hold to a post-tribulation view... You have to recognize that what comes in the tribulation is, is not the wrath of God. There's, there's no other way around that. And there's other verses we'll get to that, that speak of that time being the wrath of God. Um, but people that, that believe this, this idea of the post trib rapture will say that the, the time of the tribulation is Satan's wrath, it's not God's wrath. We also have a mid-trib rapture. Uh, they believe that the church will go through the first half of the tribulation, and, they, and similarly, they'll say the first, half, uh, the first three and a half years of that seven-year period, it's not the wrath of God, right? Um, it, it's the wrath of man. And uh, I think we'll get into some of this, but the seal and trumpet judgments, they believe will happen in the first half of the, the tribulations, and the bowl judgments will come later, And they believe that the bold judgments are the wrath of God. The seal and the trumpet judgments are just the wrath of man. Um, And and what they'll say is the trumpet of Revelation 11.15, which is the last trumpet of the trumpet judgments in Revelation, they'll say that that is the same trumpet that we read about in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. 15. And that at this blast the Lord will rapture the church the great tribulation, as they say, the the bold judgments, the wrath of God will continue there. Um, but what's interesting is that this neglects that with one of the seal judgments in Revelation chapter six, the people who are under the judgment of the seal judgment recognize Absolutely. that what they're experiencing is the wrath of the Lamb, yeah. and um, and so to to hold to the post-tribulation rapture or the mid-tribulation rapture, you really have to contend with that idea. of What is the tribulation? Is it just a period of hardship? Uh, a lot of people, are the proponents who say this, is that you know the church has promised tribulation. Jesus said we're going to go through hard times, so why would we think we escape it? But that's a misunderstanding of what the tribulation actually Absolutely. is from what we see in, in these passages. Because
0: Jesus has taken the wrath of God in his body for trees. our sins, right? Amen. He bore the wrath of God in his body on the cross for those who put their faith and trust in the Lord. Right. And he has given this promise to the church in Thessalonians that we will not endure the wrath of God. Exactly. And and yeah, I mean, Revelation 6 also talks about hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. I mean, so to to take Revelation and begin to say that parts are the wrath of, or not the wrath of God is to totally misunderstand it, is to totally miss some Old Testament passages. They speak of um, this as being a time of judgment and wrath um, of the Lord being poured out upon uh, the nations and waking up a nation. So pre-trib is going to happen. We get raptured. We get caught up in the air before the book of Revelation happens, if you will. Revelation 6 through 19. Mid-trib, just what it sounds like, is going to happen in the middle, three and a half years in. We're going to be caught up. And then there's post-trib that says it'll happen at the end right at the same time as the second coming. But here's the thing, and we're out of time, and we'll, we'll circle back around. We will do this again next week. But here's the thing that I want to, us to end with. What is the, the best argument for a pre-trib rapture? In other words, what's the best biblical argument and case to be made for that the church will not go through the great tribulation?
1: I'll let both of you kind of chime in on this, but... Well, I, I think two things come to mind. I said important. one. I'm sorry, no. <laughs> one thing comes to mind um, that has save two it for, sub save points. It for your book. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, is that this could happen at any time, right? The, the, the doctrine of imminence. There, there is no indication that we have from these passages um, that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. This is going to happen in the, in the twinkling of an eye. This is, this is going to be a, a sudden event that, that comes and takes place. The rapture is something that will happen imminently. There is nothing that needs to take place prophetically in order for the return of Jesus for his bride, the church. So if there are things that are to come, and we know that, that Jesus taught this and that we see that we need to be ready, so many encouragements of the New Testament church to be ready, which implies that the return is is going to be soon Um, we don't know the day or the hour that the Lord is going to return but um, if things needed to take place we'd be looking for something else other than the Lord to return for us Um, if you believe that the tribulation happens at the um, the rapture happens at the end or the middle of the tribulation you're looking for the antichrist you're looking for judgments to be poured to out. Witnesses. You're looking for the abomination of desolation. All of these things that happen in the tribulation. Um, and so there's that. And, and just the other thing, and, and I know Jeremy's going to speak on this, but it's so clear that, that the church is not destined for the wrath of God. Yeah, and that, and that is really
2: it for me. You know, I think understanding the, uh, the intent of the Father in the... The tribulation, um, a, a time w- we call the tribulation, but you know Scripture refers to it as Daniel's seventieth week, right? Jacob's done, trouble, yeah. d- done with Israel. But at the end here, we've got a specific, deal, <laughs> a specific dealing with um, with God's chosen people. Also with, uh, you know, an unrighteous planet that up until that point has rejected every attempt by the Lord to be reconciled. So there is no question when you read it that that it's wrath that is being poured out. But it's not just from Revelation itself. It's from, uh, you know, Ephesians 2, um, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. um, And and he says, uh, and were by nature children of wrath. Just as the others, but he's he's ransomed us out of that um, we've been you know again in Romans and elsewhere we're told first Thessalonians nine and ten Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come well either he does that or he doesn't do that. I believe when it says he does that he does and so the expectation is that he, the bride that is blood bought and purchased who he describes as being he's He's working to perfect her that he might present her to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I have tremendous difficulty reconciling that with the outpouring of wrath. The, the bride will not be perfect until we're in her the Lord's presence, but um, we also are not deserving of wrath and so uh, I, and I think with the re- uh, the rapture, I think there are times where that's been expressed fairly immaturely mm. you know I'd really discourage you from a hey, it doesn't matter we're out of here right. kind of approach. I think that's uh, just very disheartening to anybody listening um, it, it's the worst time described in the history of the planet we're given it ahead of time it's it's apocalyptic you know beyond imagination we need to be sobered by that we need to work as we've said to you know extend the gospel as far and wide as we can prior to that but we need to deal with it you know uh, soberly
0: there's a a verse that I think is um, pretty clear to the church in the Book of Revelation, chapter three, verse ten: Because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So the Lord to the church says, "I'm going to keep you out of this." And and so I think you know, uh, you, people say, "Well, for me, the, the, the one item that I think is so important is that we, that we understand is this doctrine of imminence." I think we. I think we often grab the 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 significance of not enduring the wrath of God because that's so graphic. And we can say, well, the church, the bride of Christ should not be abused by, you know, the wrath of the Lamb. But at this this point of of eminence, in other words, do you believe that Jesus can come back today? Do you believe Jesus could come back in three years? Do you believe he could come back in four? Do you believe he could come back in five? But if you hold to a a view of the rapture that says this is at the end, I'm telling you, you cannot have an expectation of the return of Jesus. You could say, maybe in seven years from today. Because seven years have to elapse and then comes the Lord. As a matter of fact, the book of Revelation even tells us that after the two witnesses are put to death, there will be 1,260 days before the Lord returns. I'm kind of compressing some thoughts and all of that. But we know that after the abomination of desolation, there will be 1,260 days, and then the Lord will come. So if you're on planet Earth and you see the abomination of desolation, you can count 1,260 days, and it has to happen. But if you believe that Jesus could come back today, tomorrow, next month, next year, at any moment, then you cannot hold to a Post trib view because you have Revelation 6 through 19 that has to unfold. And there's a lot of nasty stuff that's going to happen in Revelation 6 through 19. So, uh, yeah, we believe in a pre trib. We're going to be out of here before God's wrath comes down because we're not appointed to wrath. Um, I was reading today in Genesis where Abraham is negotiating with the Lord for Sodom, right? Lord, would you, would you destroy a city if there were 50 righteous? Forgive me. And he works all the way down to 10. He goes, if there were 10. He goes, I would not destroy it if there were 10. And so what he does, though, is he sends the angels to go in and to remove Lot out. And he says, we cannot destroy the city until you, righteous Lot, are taken out. And then the wrath of God falls. So if that's true for righteous Lot, how much more for the entirety of the body of Christ? And so these are the two of the main reasons um, for believing that. We'll come back around, and, um, and next week we'll do this next week. Some of the other questions we'll, we'll do a little bit more on the rapture. Um, we'll talk about um, how to watch for the Lord's coming. We're told to watch for the Lord's coming. How do you do that? You know, should we zero in on Y2K, 9/11, the Gulf War, blood moons, the fall of the Berlin Wall? COVID I mean what what is it that we should look at you know mandated vaccinations are any of these things speaking to the fact that the rapture is about to happen so we'll, we'll talk about that we're going to talk about the tribulation temple um, uh, that there'll be a temple that's going to be built uh, during the uh, great tribulation um, we're going to talk a little bit, yeah, about how should we view the last two years. Is America in Bible prophecy? Um, how should we re- share the Lord? So we got a lot of good questions. What's the difference between the Bema Seat and the Great White Throne Judgment? Um, is the Battle of Gog and Magog the same as the last day's battle in the book of Revelation? Is it the same as Armageddon? So we have some, some other questions that we're going to get through that you guys have submitted. But I think we've covered a lot of the big ones. We'll probably be able to pick up the speed a little bit more. But we'll be up here as we, we wrap this up. I'm sorry for going over, Sunday school teachers or Wednesday school teachers. Um, so if you got your kids, run out the door right now and get them before I get in trouble. Well, let me pray first, and then you can do that. But here's, here's the, the great thing. Jesus is coming back, Hallelujah. and, and we are going to be with him. And he's going to establish a kingdom. He's going to fulfill all of those Old Testament and New Testament prophecies. And we are going to rule and reign with him. And this is our hope. And we should live with this washing over us and cleansing us and reviving us in the midst of a world that's full of news that brings us down all day long. We know how the story ends, right? Jesus comes back. He is triumphant. And he wins and we win because he wins. and So we know how the story is going to come to its finality. And it's, um, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be great, great news. So let's close in prayer. And we'll be up here. If you have any individual questions, you can come on up. And if you want further clarification, um, we'll do our best to, to answer them. Father, we thank you that you have decided you would send your son to endure the wrath for us. We thank you, Lord, that we're saved. We thank you that you have a kingdom plan, that there's an eternity that we haven't even touched on that is out there that you are planning for us. And so you've given us so much information about the last days. And, and I pray that we would study these things. I pray that we would do our best to uh, dig in and um, understand what it is you declared would happen um, in the end. And you said that you, you tell your friends what's going to happen. Um, of things that are yet to come, and you've told us because we're your friends, Lord, as you have said, and so we would know how to be prepared, that we would be ready, that we wouldn't be asleep, that we wouldn't be um, just missing out on um, the the soon return, but that we would be sober minded. Help us, Lord, to do that. And if we've been caught up in the cares of this life, then Lord, shake that from us as we go through these scriptures. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.